Good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both in person and online. Uh, the online, we have an audio-only podcast feed. You just have to search Faith on Hill in either your Spotify or your Apple Podcasts. Video versions are available at faithonhill.com and on our Facebook page. Uh, if you are on the video version, say hello in the chat, uh, comment on the Facebook feed, share the Facebook video. Uh, we'd love to know who's here and how we can pray with you and pray for you. We gather together in small groups. Uh, we have small groups that meet um, one on Sunday mornings, one on uh, Tuesday nights for young adults. We have youth group on Tuesday nights as well. And then we have a online Zoom small group every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. If you need the link for that, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. Uh, other than that, we invite you to stay after the Bible study so for our time of response uh, through prayer and worship. And if you have a Bible, we are starting a new study uh, this week. We are starting a study in the book of 1 John in the New Testament, and we're going to talk about Christian living. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 John chapter 1. Well, this week we start a new study in the book of 1 John, and the big idea for this study is going to be Christian living. Now, not every message or Bible study is going to be uh, specifically that way. We'll let the Bible speak for itself. But, but I think the big idea in, in the book of 1 John is, how are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus? Now, it's written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. Uh, John was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, uh, he was the last of the apostles left alive. Peter, James, Thomas, Thaddeus, Matthew, all of these guys, Simon the Zealot, they had all died for their faith in Jesus Christ. And John was the only one left alive. Now, there is about as big a range of disagreement about when the book of John, especially 1 John, was written as there is in any book in the Bible. And the reason has nothing to do with this book. It actually has a lot to do with the book of the Revelation. I'm not going to get into that, but I'll say this. I believe personally that this book was written in John's later years, somewhere around 80 to 90 AD. I, I personally go for a later dating of when it was written. I believe that uh, it was written while John was sort of the pastor emeritus of the church in Ephesus. So for a while, he had been exiled on the island of Patmos, and that was where he received the vision of the revelation. And then he got back to Exodus, and I believe that um, that is when he wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, he, he got the book of Exodus recorded, uh, or sorry, the book of the Revelation recorded, he, he, and then he started writing these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so he starts off his letter by saying that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is God's Word. I believe that it is faithful and true. And I ask God that you would imprint your Word on our hearts. Speak your truth to us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, the risen Savior. Amen. So, what John is doing at the beginning of this letter, and this is what's called a general letter. You know, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Galatia, the church in Corinth, uh, the church in Ephesus. John, Peter, James, some of these guys, they wrote just general letters that were meant for wider distribution. And, and so they're called the general epistles. And John's just writing this to a much broader audience. It was meant to be read. And, and he says, first, here's my credentials. He says, I heard Jesus. And then he says, I saw and I looked. And he says, I touched him. And so he's laying out his credentials. This is how I have the authority to speak on these things. He says, I heard Jesus. I listened to him teach. I, I heard the words that he said. That is, by the way, what was called, uh, sometimes you'll hear this phrase, apostolic authority. Uh, there's two kinds of apostles, near as I can tell. And there's a lot of disagreement in the church, and over the years there's been a lot of disagreement about this. But the basic way that I can understand it is this. The word apostles means somebody who is sent out. And so I look around the church today, and I see people that start churches missionaries, um, people that leave and they go somewhere, they're sent out to start something. I see them as modern-day apostles. We also see that the apostles seem to have authority outside of one geographic location. And I've seen that just in a practical sense in our day, that I, I have met church leaders who have great influence in a city, in a church, but not far beyond that. And then uh, for those who, who came to Mexico with us a few years ago, and we hope to go back to Mexico again once COVID's over, but we, we went and we worked with Victor and Sonia Meral, uh, who you've, if you haven't gone there, you don't know who they are. But if you go to the Baja Peninsula in Mexico, people know who Victor is in the churches there, that that. If you mention, you know, among the, the, the churches of Jesus in, in, in Mexico, and whether it's uh, Baptist churches or Pentecostal churches, non-denominational churches, people know who this guy is. And I see Victor as a, an example of somebody who has an apostolic ministry. He has a, he's sent, he goes out, he starts things, he has influence and sometimes authority even, in multiple churches all over the Baja Peninsula. So, so that's a modern-day apostle. But then there's also apostles uh, in the sense of those who were witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus, or closely connected. So Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus. 
James and Jude were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was not. But he says he went and interviewed the eyewitnesses. He went and did the investigation. Plus, he was closely linked to Paul, who he himself witnessed the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I can't prove it. I can't prove it, but I am convinced that Paul uh, very possibly saw Jesus uh, before uh, he was a believer when Jesus was crucified. I can't prove it. That's just a theory I've had for a long time. That's where we get this idea of apostolic authority. So when we looked at how somebody gets to write the Bible, when it comes to the New Testament, we, one of the things that the church has looked for was who was an eyewitness, who had actually heard and seen Jesus. So John's saying, I was there. I heard the words that he said. And then he says, I saw and I looked. Now, why would he repeat that? I'm not an expert in Greek. I don't claim to be. I've taken some classes in New Testament Greek, but that doesn't mean that I, I, I'm, I'm the person you go to as the expert. I'll say this. I can read the guys who are experts. And, and from what I understand in reading the Greek lexicons and the commentaries, it could be that what he is saying is, I saw and I beheld. Meaning, I physically saw Jesus. I physically saw Jesus walk on water. I physically saw Jesus live out his life. John, we're told, physically saw Jesus die. He was there at the crucifixion. And he physically saw someone that he believed to be Jesus risen from the dead. And then when it says, I looked, or some translations might say, I beheld, I personally think it's a turn of phrase. I looked and I beheld. I physically saw him, yes, but I also observed him. That for three years of Jesus' public life and ministry, John was one of the people closest to him. He observed him. You ever heard the saying, don't ever meet your heroes? Uh, you know, I remember somebody telling me once that they had a friend who um, back in, in the day was like the biggest fan of, of David Bowie. And then he said, what would you do if you met them? And they, they had this very surprisingly self-aware response. Well, that would ruin everything. Because that person recognized that they had this built-up idea of the myth of this artist or entertainer. But if they actually met the real person, they might not like them. Um, I've considered that in the past, you know, what would happen if I actually met my hero? In Jesus's case, what John is saying is, it's the real deal. Um, Jesus was who he was in private as much as he was in public. John says, I traveled with him, I looked, I beheld, I observed. It wasn't just the words he said, it was the life that he lived. And he says, I touched him. Now, why would John say that? It comforts me to know that even in the earliest days of the church, just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, that there were heretics. Why would that comfort me? 
Well, quite honestly, sometimes I look around the world and I see the state of the church and I think, oh Lord, it's so terrible. And then I read church history or I read the Bible itself and I realize there's always been problems. And as much as I might get discouraged about how the church is at large, and there are discouraging things. The, the, the current statistics say that of the people who were regular church goers in 2019, 25 to 30 percent of regular churchgoers in 2019 have stopped going to church completely. No podcast, no online service, no in-person service, no small group, nothing. And quite honestly, we've seen that here at Faith. And, and one of the things that I, I pr- think about and I pray about is the reclamation project of bringing people back into fellowship with God's people over the next several years. But why would John say that he touched Jesus? Well, it's because the original Christians had problems too. And the original Christians had heretics too. And just as in our day, there are people who try to make the gospel of Jesus more acceptable to a sinful world, in John's day, there were these groups called the Gnostics. And Gnosticism means like secret knowledge. And what they were trying to do is they were taking Greek Gnosticism, which had existed long before Jesus, and they were trying to merge it with the Christian faith thus making it more acceptable to a culture that was dominated by Greek culture. If they could say, hey, this Jesus that we're really into, it's just the same as the Gnosticism that you guys were into, then it would be acceptable, palatable to them. And oh, if you could just accept that, then we could all be friends. And you could think Jesus is cool because we think Gnosticism's cool. Well, one of the teachings of Gnosticism was that all physical matter, all physical matter, the dirt, the plants, the animals, your physical body, my physical body, all physical matter is inherently evil. And so what these Christians who were trying to adopt Gnosticism and merge it into Christianity, what they said is, well, if all physical matter is inherently evil, and Jesus was without sin, then what what they were saying was that Jesus must not have had a body. And church tradition tells us that these heretics would make up fanciful stories. And they would say, you know, Jesus, if he walked along the beach, wouldn't leave footprints. The, the, per, the dad part of me that likes to make bad dad jokes would love to, I tried this week, to write a bad dad joke about that footprint poem that was really popular in the 90s. If you don't know what that is, good. <laughs> I just couldn't write anything that I thought was funny. So that's, that's as close as I got to that bad dad joke. But they would say things like if Jesus was in a crowd, that Jesus had to be careful so that he didn't accidentally pass through somebody because he was a spirit who appeared physical. And so if he bumped into somebody, he wouldn't bump into them. He would actually pass through them like a ghost. John is saying nonsense, nonsense. I'm, I'm thankful that John lived longer than most of his contemporaries and spoke into the 
second and third generations of the church because their issues were different than the issues that Paul was writing about a few decades earlier. Paul died around 60 AD, and I believe that John was writing about 20, 25 years later. And I'm thankful that he was there to speak into those issues. So that's why I think he's saying, I touched Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus appeared to the disciples and he said, come here, especially to doubting Thomas. He said, come here, look at the wounds in my, my wrists. Look at the wound in my side. Come and see, it's really me. I'm risen from the dead. And he's physical. Other places in the Gospels, uh, John made a big point in his Gospel to say Jesus had a physical body when he resurrected, that he ate with the disciples. And so John is, is saying, hey, I heard Jesus. I saw him physically. I observed Jesus. I beheld him. I looked at his life. And I physically touched him after he rose from the dead. I can tell you that he was dead. I saw him die. And then I saw him alive. That's his credentials. Now you might say, I've never heard Jesus. I've never seen Jesus. I've certainly never touched Jesus. How could I tell somebody about Jesus? Jesus said, you believe in me because you've seen, speaking to doubting Thomas. But he said, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. I've heard because I've read the word of God. I've heard because I've, I've heard the spirit speak to my soul and spirit. I, I've seen lives changed. I've seen the miracle working power of God in people's lives. Not just in people coming to faith, although I believe that that is the biggest and greatest miracle there is, but I have seen God heal people. I have seen God take people who were on the total wrong path, who had nothing going for them, and use them in incredible ways. I have seen God take broken relationships between husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, and so on and so on and so on, and just restore and heal. I've seen I've heard, I've seen, I've experienced. I've experienced the work of God, the Holy Spirit in my life. I've seen what happens when God moves in a place, in a people, in a family, in a church. And because of that, I can speak what I have seen and share that. And what have you seen How has Jesus delivered you? How have you seen Jesus work? How have you experienced God's Holy Spirit in your world? You say, oh, I don't don't know what to tell people. Tell them what you've seen. I have no trouble talking to people about my wife. I have no trouble talking to people about my kids. Why? Because I know them and I live with them and I can tell you all about them. Can I suggest to you that the the true Christian can tell anyone something about Jesus because they know Jesus, because they follow Jesus. Now, as I grow in my faith and as I've lived longer as a Christian, can I tell people more? Absolutely. And that's one of the most exciting things about being a Christian is that I know more now than I used to. And I trust and believe that I'll know more about Jesus and who he is 
in the future. I hope that I will continue, and I believe that I will continue to be a better witness of Jesus in 20 years than I am today. Because I will experience more of him and learn more of him and grow deeper in my faith and my relationship with God. And I believe the same for you. It all starts with the gospel. When we say Christian living, right? What does that mean? It all starts with the good news of Jesus that Christ died to save sinners. And that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, we're going to read that in a, in a verse in our prayer and response time a little later, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to every Christian. It all starts with the gospel. And what's John's message? He says, our faith is from the beginning, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus. He's saying that Jesus was not created. Jesus is eternal. That means two things. First, it means this. Every religion has a starting point. And even I will acknowledge that the church has a starting point on the day of Pentecost, about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. But our faith is from the beginning. I, I don't see the Christian faith as starting 2,000 years ago. I see the church is starting, and that's how God's worked in this season of human history. And before that, he worked through the Old Covenant and the people of Israel. And before that, he was working in different ways. And you see that before the Old Covenant where there's uh, Melchizedek and there's Noah and there's these, these other guys who weren't Jewish, but God was working through them. But I trace my faith in God all the way back to the first people, Adam and Eve. That the same God who walked with them in the garden before the fall, the same God who in Genesis chapter 3 said there's coming someone who will defeat the enemy. That's the God that we worship. That's Jesus. John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And all things were created by him. And then a few verses later, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus. And John wants it to be clear. Our faith is not the faith that began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born. Our faith is not the faith that began at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses brought the covenant to God's people. Our faith is not the faith that began when Abram left Ur of the Chaldees and journeyed to the promised land. Our faith is that which is from the very foundations of the world, the very creation of the world. And that Jesus was never created. He has always been. He has always been. He was incarnated. God became human flesh at that very first Christmas. But he is eternal and he has always been with the Father. He has always been equally God as the Father and as the Spirit. And John's message is we have an eternal God, an ancient faith, and we can have 
unity with God and with each other. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. This is a tension that exists in different parts of the Christian faith. Our sisters and our brothers in the Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox Church emphasize the union that we have with God the Father. And what, they, what you mean by that is this, that God's relationship is with his church. And so when we become Christians, we join the church to have relationship with God. Western Protestantism, of which our church is, is part of that tradition or that stream, emphasizes personal relationship. That my parents' faith does not save me. My wife's faith does not save me. And there's a lot of dudes that think that, right? That they, they, they go to church to make their wife happy and they're, they're just like, you know, my wife's, my wife's a believer. Now, there's a lot of people I've met over the years, like, do you have faith? Well, my grandmother prays. That's awesome that your grandmother prays, but what about you? And so we emphasize that personal relationship with God because no one else can go to Jesus for me. No one else can surrender their life to God for me. Only I can do that. Only you can do that for yourself. At the same time, I have an individual or personal faith. But when I put my faith in Jesus, Jesus takes my life and he puts me into this collective family called the church. And so now I'm connected with you and you're connected with me, and we're connected with the church down the road and across the country and across the world, and why we say we have brothers and sisters all over the world. When I go to Mexico, you know, everyone's a hermano or a hermana because we are family in Christ. What defines our faith? What's the definition of Christian living? It's Jesus and his people. Jesus and his people. And if I try to live as a Christian with only his people, that's dead religion. That's where you get all the legalism and the rules and the piety and the, you know, I look good on the outside, but on the inside I'm rotten. It doesn't work. We've tried it. It fails. And if I say, well, I just need me and Jesus, then I'm denying this word here that I have fellowship not just with Jesus, but with his people. And I'm robbing the people of God if I'm not connected with them. And I miss out. I am less and you are less if somebody refuses to be connected in fellowship with us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all at the same church, but we recognize the other churches in our area and our region, and we have fellowship as much as possible with them and they with us as much as possible. And I want to have connection with a church family somewhere. Can we do that online? Let me say this. The online service that we provide is wonderful, and I'm so thankful for it, uh, where we've had to be separate because of a pandemic. And I'm thankful for it when somebody goes on vacation, somebody's sick. Hey, you know what? I don't feel good today, but I know I can log on and I can still worship Jesus and hear from God's word. So we continue to provide an online option and we will continue post-COVID to provide an online service. But the truth is, if I'm going to be really connected, I got to be in person somewhere. I got to be connected somewhere. And so if you're with us online, you're not any lesser of a Christian. 
but the invitation is there to go deeper. Is online church church? I think what happens is temporarily it sure can be. In the long term, it's not great. So John's credentials is what he has seen and experienced. His message is a message of this eternal truth, this timeless faith that defines us. Fellowship with God through Jesus. Fellowship with people through Jesus. And then finally, he speaks of his joy. We write this to make our joy complete. John's joy was in knowing, in people knowing God. His joy was in people knowing God. There is nothing greater that can happen than for somebody to know God through faith in Jesus and for somebody to be set free of their sins because of Jesus' work in their life. And his joy was made complete by people being connected to God's people. Not just knowing Jesus, not just going to heaven, but living in the kingdom of God here and now and being connected together in fellowship and in unity. That brought joy to his soul. And I'll tell you this, if your joy is outward focused, then your joy can be endless. If my joy is based on how I feel, then there's going to be a lot of times where I don't feel joyful. Because I wake up and I got a headache. I wake up and my allergies are bothering me. I wake up and the kids aren't listening. I wake up and I, I check the news and people in the world are frustrating me. But if my joy is focused on others and serving others and bringing Jesus to others and seeing people find God and, and be connected, my joy can be endless. John's credentials are what he's seen and experienced. His message is one of peace and power and life change. And his joy is based, not on himself, but on others. The foundation for Christian living is the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we continue to study the book of 1 John, we'll continue to talk about practical things that uh, pertain to how to live as Christians. But if our fellowship isn't based on Jesus, then it will be incomplete. Republicans and Democrats who are Christians should be able to eat a meal together and pray together and acknowledge each other as brethren. Old and young, black and white and Asian and Latino, and, and all of us who are surrendered to Jesus, should say our cultural differences, our point of view difference, our philosophical differences, those need to be surrendered to God. And I will submit myself to seeking unity. And if I'm not in Christ, and you say, I want that, then come to Jesus. End the rebellion. Surrender yourself and find peace with God and fellowship with others who have been set free by Jesus. There's no greater thing that somebody can do. There's no greater way. And if you want to make John's joy complete and my joy complete, and you say, I want Jesus, let us know. God bless you. Let's stay together as we go into a time of prayer and worship and respond to what God has spoken to us.
Well, as we have been studying God's word this morning and a focus on the gospel, we want to respond to what God has been speaking to us. I want to invite us into a time of prayer and reflection. I think a lot of times we have a hard time focusing on prayer uh, because we, we don't know how to structure it. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read from the scripture and invite you to grab onto words or phrases or verses that speak to you. Feel free to use the pause button if you need more time to linger in prayer. Whatever a posture of prayer is for you, whether it's with your hands folded, seated, whether it's uh, on your knees, eyes open, eyes closed, however a posture of prayer is for you, I'd invite you to enter into that. As I read from Ephesians chapter 1, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And at this moment, I invite you to think about the people in your life who we so often pray for those who don't know Jesus. Think about those who do. The people in your life who have spoken God's love, God's truth, God's wisdom into your life. I want you to name them before the Lord. And I want you to give thanks. Just thank God for them. God, thank you for my parents, Jim and Nita and my my dad, Brian. God, thank you for all of the kids' church teachers and the youth leaders and the youth pastors over the years. God, thank you for friends and and co-laborers in the gospel that I have uh, who have poured into my life. Thank you for my wife, Angie, who speaks Jesus into my world. We give thanks for all of them. And if you need to pause and just keep giving thanks, this is a great moment to do so. Paul continues on. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one that is to come. And so at this time, I would invite us to ask God to fill us fresh and new with the power that comes from his Holy Spirit. If you don't have words for that, then maybe just pray along with me. And if if what I'm saying resonates with you, you can just say, yes, Lord, I want that. God, thank you that you sent and you came and you have given. The Father sent the Son Jesus, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Spirit to give us power and peace and comfort. And so God, the Holy Spirit, we invite you in. Because we are in Christ, we ask for your power. 
for your presence, for your peace, for your work, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we welcome into our lives. We welcome into our spirits, into our souls. I pray that that power would be seen in our homes, in our work, in our relationships, in our love for each other, for our neighbors, and for you, God. And finally, he says, And God placed all things under his feet, speaking of Jesus, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so, Lord, we invite you to be the head of our lives once again. And if I've never put my faith in Jesus, then I invite you to place your faith. And for those of us who have had faith in Jesus for many years, we, Lord, ask that you would refocus us, refocus us on you as the head and ruler of our lives, of our homes, of our family, of our church. Thank you, Jesus, that you fulfill all of the things that we need in this life and in the life to come. I pray that we would see the fullness of you in our hearts and our spirits. And if there's somewhere in your life where you're not seeing the fullness of Jesus, it's not because he doesn't want to give. And so name those things. Ask. Respond. And Lord, as we've remembered all that you've given, all that you have done, all that you can and will do, I pray that we would walk forward in your power, in your peace, in your perfection. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you this week in our small groups and next Sunday morning.